the celebrated play that delighted the world. Actually photographed amidst the wondrous beauties of Salzburg, Austria, with the performance of a lifetime by the screen's brightest star, Julie Andrews, in the glorious role of Maria. Maria, who entered the strange new world of Captain Von Trapp and captivated his seven children with a magical spell of song. Fräulein, did I not tell you that bedtime is strictly to be observed in this house? Uh, yeah, with the, with the... You did, sir. And do you or do you not have difficulty remembering such simple instructions? Only during thunderstorms, sir. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And this week, Samantha Ellis is taking a much-deserved break, and we are joined by the woman who single-handedly runs the Ticklish Business website, Kimberly Pierce. Kim, how are you? I am good. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for pinch-hitting at the last (laughs) second to jump in. This year was marked by the unfortunate passing of Christopher Plummer. So we wanted to honor that. And we are talking about the 1965 musical, The Sound of Music. There might be people that say that The Sound of Music is the worst movie we could have picked to honor Christopher Plummer, because he didn't like making it. It's not a movie that he is probably acting ability greatly known for. Drea, I'll start with you. Why do you think The Sound of Music is is a good plumber film to discuss? What is it about this movie that I think for many people, when they heard about his passing, brought this up? That it's definitive in so many ways and so recognizable with him? Yeah. The reality is Sound of Music, I can't imagine a film more widely known that he's in but that a film almost more widely known than any film. I mean, it's The Sound of Music. It's internationally renowned. It wasn't just an enormous American success. It's a globally recognized thing. We'll dig into all of it, but he really is the crux of it. And the acting he's doing in it really elevates the whole thing. There's a reason that they brought in Christopher Plummer into a musical who then would need the music dubbed. Because the gravitas, the warmth. I know we'll also talk too about how much he shaped this character and changed it on the page as well. Yes, there are certainly broader stroke or more nuanced roles that he probably, as an actor, responded to or thinks more fondly of. But it's the sound of music. That's what people thought of when he passed. So why not get into all of the juicy goodness that lies within Gravitas and juicy goodness, starting out the episode with some Drea-isms that I love. No, but you're totally right. For me, as somebody who saw The Sound of Music relatively late in life and had seen Christopher Plummer and other things prior to that, he slowly came around to this movie because he realized the success and the adoration for it. And if you look at other Plummer features, this was a very different role for him in the sense of being a really saccharine type of movie, steeped in old Hollywood, and we can talk about how the musical was slowly dying by the time this movie came out. He never 
sneers at this movie. I mean, his character may sneer at other characters, but he is not doing anything knowingly like, I know this is trash. I'm doing this for a paycheck. They've said that he was drinking a lot during this movie. He never gives a performance that makes you say, that guy is drunk. And trust me, there are certain old Hollywood actors where you can tell they were tanked when they made this movie. He treats the material with respect and he treats the role with reverence and an understanding that any other actor would have just not been able to do. And it allowed him to do roles that he wanted after this. The success of this movie allowed him to do more nuanced things or smaller roles where he was able to really dive into things. Honestly, if we were talking plumber, I'd have probably said we should do Inside Daisy Clover. If we're talking about Christopher Plummer chewing some scenery and going ham on a roll. That movie is my favorite in so many ways for so many reasons, and he's really good in it. And that came out right around the same time as this, so it's a nice little juxtaposition, but he really does elevate this material and gives a performance, much like we said last episode with Joan Crawford. Even if the role is not worthy of their largesse, he never underplayed it. Kim, what about you? Do you have anything you want to throw out well, there? I would completely agree this is the first role to go to for the nostalgia power alone, the formative nature of it. I came to it not very late, but I was already pretty into classic film by this point. It was one of the ones that you tick off the list. It's for me, when I think back on it, this is the first Christopher Plummer role I think of. Looking back on social media when he passed, that was where people were going. The connections people made when they were children seeing it. And this is often one of those movies that you see as an introduction to film. This is one of those iconic musicals that you go back to. The footage of her coming up the mountain is just something you always see. And we will always see for decades and centuries past this. This is Hollywood cinema. It makes sense to start here. I can't believe you guys both said that you came into this like somewhere in my youth or childhood. I must have just been watching The Sound of Music because I saw this so, so young and the idea of seeing him in something before this doesn't even compute with me. What? No, I was raised on The Sound of Music. I'm glad that you both have that angle in because it is an interesting... We've talked about that before. Of There's certainly other stars that I've had to admit, oh, I actually knew them from this probably much more embarrassing thing than the thing they were known for. And that's another element of The Sound of Music, right, is that it's a classic film that was and still is so broadly played on television. There's so much more access to it for so many people. Again, leading to the Christopher Plummer recognition, it wasn't just the popularity, it's how much every single year. But I feel like multiple times a year. It's not just your your Wizard of Oz around Halloween. Sound of Music is like, oh, yeah, it's Sound of Music. For Easter, it's Sound of Music for Christmas. It's all times. It's for all seasons, truly. I can tell you off of that that Sound of Music I came late to because my mother absolutely despises this movie. She said, I love that. <laughs> this is her story, is she grew to hate it because every Easter the families would get together and that would be the only movie that was ever on that she had to watch. And so after several years of having to watch this movie, she grew to hate it. Oddly enough, I treat The Sound of Music more as a Christmas movie in several ways, mostly because my favorite things has been hijacked by commercials. But 
I watch it every year at Christmas and my mother will leave the room. She's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't oh want to know goodness. about it. She absolutely hates it. So watching it as a teenager was almost like my weird way of rebelling. I'm going to watch this movie that you hate so that much. That is amazing. So yes, uh, 1965 musical was my way of going punk or something. <laughs> that is very you. That's very, very fitting. <laughs> it's a very me statement. Before we get into everything and lose the plot of the film, this is directed by Robert Wise, who you've probably seen numerous movies. He was a jack of all trades. He did West Side Story, The Haunting, Star Trek, The Motion Picture. He has a very prolific and complex career. It tells the story of Maria, played by Julie Andrews, who leaves an Austrian convent to become a governess to the children of a naval officer named Captain Von Trapp, played by Christopher Plummer, just as the Anschluss is coming. Yes, Nazis will be here at some point. We're going to talk about this movie being a weird political statement now, as opposed to 1965. Where do we start with this movie? Because there are so many things, it's nearly three hours, yet it's not like the roadshow films where they have an entre-act... There is an intermission, but this is not necessarily played like the roadshow films of the era. Let's start with the overarching thing. This was released in 65. Television was already a thing. We're seeing the roadshows. The musical is dying. It would end, what, a year or two later with Hello, Dolly, which is commonly cited as the film that ended the musicals. This was a surprise in a lot of ways because musicals were not that successful. They were slowly falling apart but this was a movie that had all the things it was based on a successful broadway show with mary martin julie andrews had come off of my fair lady was doing that she also had mary poppins in there and this was essentially her apology for not getting my fair lady which went to audrey hepburn a lot of different things going on that would shape the closure of the studio system into the creation of the new era of filmmaking as we know it. There's also an interesting backstory in the development process of this. It's based on the real life story of Maria and Georg von Trapp. She had written a book about her family or something about the family that had been looked at as an option for a film early on and then let go. And then it went to the musical for Mary Martin. One of the things I found really interesting in looking into this was how much power in shaping it the screenwriter had because you're coming off of a source material of real life family and you're trying to integrate and you want to integrate the songs from this musical and then cobbling those together and making more filmic and how you're shaping it and how you're differing from what the family was like in real life to everything that you need the screenwriter also had say in the director because William Wyler was attached to this, right? For a year of development. There's so much behind the scenes of this that surprised me in the ways that it went because normally when you have that detail ahead of time, it gets either in the weeds or it gets too sweet. But it seems like all of their notes of Robert Wise's notes and also Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews had the same thing of worrying that it was going to be too saccharine and too sweet, like the stage musical was. And they instead really beefed up a lot of authentic relationships or inner family 
conflict and the political state. The buildup of this film and the development process was interesting and paid off in a way that many that spend that time, it just becomes mired in studio notes that when you watch a film, it's like you can feel an executive was like, you know what? I think in this scene, she just needs to be sexy. Whereas the sound of music, whatever notes they were putting in at the time, they were like cranking it through, really paid off with something that was a lot more layered than you'd think it would be. The heart of it is this woman dealing with the conflict of faith. That is not your normal hang your hat on for a musical. The scope really plays into the success and the time that it came out coming in the mid 60s you had a little bit more breathing room to deal with some of those questions, the political issues, the crisis of faith, but then you also have the scope that we had Cleopatra, what, two years earlier. The scope was big in the 50s with Ben-Hur and such, but they had so much more room to present this just behemoth of a film and explore all these areas, which might not have necessarily happened to the same extent, maybe 10 years before. I would say that timing was definitely a sweet spot. Well, and also, if you look at the political content that Kim's bringing up, coming out in 1965, we're in Vietnam. Movies of this period really were getting a lot of flack for not necessarily reflecting what was going on. The mid to late 60s tend to be Hollywood's ignoring what happened or what is going on with regards to civil rights and what's going on with regards to the war in Vietnam. It would culminate with... Sidney Poitier's In the Heat of the Night not getting, what is it, the Oscar in favor of Dr. Doolittle, which a lot of people also starting to create that resentment of musicals as this genre that was out of date, that was meant to showcase a time gone by where you didn't have people of color, and all of those criticisms are very valid. And The Sound of Music was certainly not removed from that discussion. It did win five Oscars, including Best Picture. If you're looking at what was nominated for Best Picture that year, you had some serious, serious movies, including Apache Blue and Dr. Zhivago, stuff where people were like, how is this not winning Best Picture? It was A Thousand Clowns, Dr. Zhivago, Darling, and Ship of Fools, which if you look at what people remember from that Oscar year, it's Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago, the serious war romance. It was certainly proving that musicals were passe. And for Julie Andrews, too, this is a film that was really hard for her to break out of because she had the one-two punch of doing Mary Poppins and Sound of Music. And her amazing biography, Homework, which if you've not read it, you should. She talks very heavily about how having played the perfect nanny and playing a nut really did have people saying that she couldn't be anything else. And she spent a lot of time trying to show people that she was an actress. She could play all sorts of different characters, not just a nun. And I think that her performance here is really layered, even if it's short on sexuality. The thing is, I don't think it's short on sexuality. And that's actually a great way to get into the plumber of it. Because if you look at the casting that they came in separately, the chemistry between these two is enormous and sparky. You both believe that she is virginal, that she is all of the things a nun should be. But you also believe that they want to jump each other's bones. 
And if you don't have that, not a way that many people describe the sound of music possibly, but if you don't have that real palpable sense of attraction between the captain and Maria, you lose a lot from the choices he's making because then it turns into, frankly, much closer to what the real life was, which began as a marriage of convenience. It was much less sentimental and romantic. The movie version has a beautiful romance feel because when she runs away because she's afraid of how she feels, you believe that. You're like, yes, who wouldn't want to leave their life for this man? Yes, thank you with the whistle. You get it, you know? And their chemistry is so, so important. It's also part of the nuance of what they're doing, even if they didn't feel like, as actors maybe, it was the full breadth of what they could do. But Christopher Plummer is this person who has to be respectable. He, she's an employee. They're in different classes. She's a nun in training. And yet their interactions, they have that level of respect, but there is a constant curiosity and a genuine sense of awakening. There's so much romance in this film that proper romances don't come near. That's another reason why Christopher Plummer is upheld in such a way, because he is responsible for so much of that energy. When he passed, the first thing that leaps to my mind was how quickly everybody on Twitter went to Christopher Plummer thirst. There is a reason that everybody went there so fast. He somehow walks that line between being the captain, but it's electric. And that hits exactly to the chemistry you're speaking about. I mean, I was just re-watching some of the big music numbers last night and the dance sequence, what in the middle of the film where it's just him and Maria, you can just see it all building up in that moment leading to her awakening of, oh God, now I'm officially terrified of what I feel here. They capture it and it's so close and they know exactly what they're playing into, but it taps into something that's not necessarily stated and everybody picked up on that. You're so right. That's a perfect example. They're doing an Austrian folk dance. Not the sexiest words you've ever heard. This is not a <laughs> lambada. They're literally doing this hop, skip, skip, hop, skip, skip. And you're like, humana, humana. There's a heat happening there. He has this intensity, but it's never overempowering. It's never overwhelming. It is just this, oh, I see you. The other side of the captain, of course, is you get him. He's such a revered military personnel that they have to have him. The whole thing is how they want him to come back to the military. He's so powerful. His whole thing, you meet him, he's all clinical. He doesn't know how to be a father. He's a grieving widower. And yet the other thing that unlocks is, oh, he has this soft, gooey musical center. Oh, he's going to casually pick up a guitar and start singing Edelweiss. Are you kidding me? The blend of those things. Thirst as it's known now, was not a concept then. But Christopher Plummer embodying those things, that has been true since this movie came out. They didn't have the same word for it, but they knew it. I was amazed at the amount of people who came out and discussed Captain Von Trapp as a first crush. I had never really thought about it that way. That touches on it right there, just what everybody was seeing and feeling and what the complicated work he was doing. He's one of those performers where when you have only seen him older and then you realize 
that he was young once and he was making these movies. It's just like yep. insane to you to be like, that's Christopher Plummer, that guy, what is happening? But to both of your points, what I appreciated watching this movie, he talked about when he originally was making this movie, he really didn't like Julie Andrews. He said that working with her was, quote, being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card every day. But he said later, over years of really reconciling with the feature, that he really needed that dislike of her so that he could tamp down the sentimentality and ramp up the cynicism, which really works. They have this great moonlighting-esque dynamic of she's happiness and wants the children to play and wants to appreciate life. And he's just giving her the side eye being like, oh my God, this woman, what have I let into my house? And some of the best moments between them are those moments where they are sniping at each other to talk about julie andrews comedian i don't think she gets enough love for her comedy work but when he talks about her outfit when they first meet and he says something about the she gave her clothes to the poor and he says well what about that and she's all the poor didn't want these i love that line and it's said with just no guile it's not said as a joke she's saying it like well i don't know why they didn't want these these are ridiculous Later on, when they are talking, or even when he's interacting with the children, there's some of those thirstiest moments where he's talking to them about where they've been. They've gone to see Maria to bring her back, and they say that they've been eating berries. And he's like, well, that's great. That means you don't need to eat dinner to catch them in that lie. But he has such a naturalness to interacting with these children and interacting with Maria. Sometimes when you have a romance where characters hate each other, it's often hard for you to be like, well, why are they all of a sudden in love? What has gone on here? But that because both him and Julie Andrews are playing it just right, you are able to see that it's not a grand revelation that he loves her. It is this slow, gradually increase of respect. I love that moment when Maria confronts him about how he doesn't know his kids and they're arguing. He calls her captain, which was a slip by Plummer actually while they were filming and they kept it in the movie. I love that because it's the first time his character has realized, oh no, this woman's on par with me. That brings to mind a moment I was just noticing last night. I was rewatching where we introduced the children. Veronica Cartwright's character. She wanders in with the book. Louisa? Uh, yeah. Is it Louisa Brigida? Louisa uh, with the dark hair. Yes. She she walks in. All the kids have already came down and she's reading the book. And he uh, walks over. He takes the Brigida, book. Maybe Brigida, but I know what you mean. He leans over. Yeah. She And he just gently smacks her. And she okay. with the book, she gets into the line. It shines her in. It's like, this guy's a good father. He has this, but it's playful enough where it's felt just right. That's a perfect place of that combination. You believe that he is this military person, this stern father who is not emotionally connecting fully with his kids, who's not working on their level, but that at the heart of him, there's all this good. The other side of it that really unlocks it and that has been shown through the ages to be a tactic from romances is his relationship with the Baroness and how he chooses Maria over her is one of those things that for viewers who are in the swoony place, there's that idea of it's Eleanor Parker. She's so glamorous. She's so beautiful. The Baroness and Max are like two of my favorite side characters in anything in my life. 
If I could grow up to be the Baroness, I would, and threaten some children that I'm going to send them to boarding school. It's all I've ever wanted while wearing a fabulous suit. She's done so well. And the idea that Georg could have this relationship with the Baroness, clearly a woman of her own wealth, of culture and beauty, and having all of these attributes that women are honed to or told to admire or aspire to, through all of that, through his connection with her, that what his heart tells him to do is to be with this woman who is more plain, who has terrible clothes, who has this more modest background. And there's that thing of the fandoms that are created over love stories, where especially it's the man choosing a woman because he sees her real beauty. He sees that what she represents is the biggest, most beautiful thing that could be. That's Twilight. That's so many movies. It's crazy. And that that's buried is part of Sound of Music is this very unexpected thing. But just his realization of comparing these two women and deciding, oh, this is actually what my heart wants. There's that thing in a lot of romances that that aspirational quality of, oh, if someone like that could find the more humble choice, the better choice then I could be that humble, better choice for someone. That is the root of a lot of romances here and to come, and they do it really well. It's really interesting to look at the dichotomy between Maria and the Baroness. I love Eleanor Parker. She also had a really fascinating career in the grand scheme of things coming out from the studio era, and she played everything this was as she was getting older, and they do try, and I noticed it because it's on Disney Plus and it's HD. You can see, not that Eleanor Parker was unattractive by any stretch, but you can see them doing the 60s things of heavily lidded eyes and attempting to make her and Maria look relatively close in age, which is totally fine. Eleanor Parker is utterly gorgeous in every sense of the word. But what I love about her as a character is that Maria is the woman you marry. You get it. You see that the Baroness is not the woman you you have kids with because she doesn't like them. But also, it does give Plummer's character a bit more of that thirst element because there's obviously some sort of sexual interest. That's the woman that you definitely maybe want to marry when you don't have seven children. There's definitely more of a sexual connection than there is a lifelong respect and friendship to them. But Eleanor Parker really takes the Baroness to a character that we all really love in that good villain kind of way. I'm a big fan of evil stepmothers in movies. And I always think when I hear Baroness, I think of her and Angelica Houston and Ever After. What Eleanor Parker does is, it's not that she's necessarily evil in terms of scheming, like I'm going to send these kids to boarding school. It's more just, I can't handle this. When she's playing the game with the ball and they're like, hurling it at her she's like this is fun right this is a woman that has no concept of how to relate to children has probably never been around them so it's not necessarily her being evil and manipulative just her being like i don't like kids there's a reason i don't have them and that makes her really understandable especially to women as this movie would go into the 80s and 90s where having children is more of a choice than it was in 65 or even 55 that's fair. I should say that I'll clarify my desire to say that to some children in the future is much more 
in the parent trap realm of oh, once I marry him, you're going to Switzerland. (laughs) But that's one of the reasons Eleanor Parker's portrayal of the Baroness is so great, because she's also given her vulnerability. And there's something, too, that's a great point of the casting. She's older than Christopher Plummer. She's 12 or 13 years older than Julie Andrews, but it's not put in a haggard way. It's this, oh, she's a very cultured, put-together, grown woman versus a literal babe from the nunneries. And I like that. I also think there's a nice nuance there of how she's pats these kids on the floor like, oh, they're there. She does not understand them. It's, it's more of a distaste. I don't dislike them because I don't think about them when they're not around. There's not any given history to her as a character. We don't know why. You get some sort of knowledge that she's fond of Georg, but you don't really know any backstory about her. She exists in the confines of this movie. And so it's hard for a lot of people to really identify with those nuances because we're so used to having backstory for characters now. But what I really noticed this time around is that, and I could just be adding my own thoughts to this, but when she tells Maria, puts the idea in her head that he's interested in her and she ultimately decides to leave, not knowing anything about her history, I was left wondering, she's a baroness, but what is the financial situation? Is this her last chance to have a family or a husband? Is the concept of losing out to a younger woman, how does that play in? So what I was really struck by is that those manipulations of Maria specifically really do cause the viewer, especially if you're a female viewer, to really fill in those gaps because Eleanor Parker does give you that vulnerability. You're not automatically thinking, well, she's a horrible human being for doing this. See, I'm wondering what it says about me because the comparison of, I always put her in the same camp as Vicky in Parent Trap. And I don't find Vicky all that evil. Joanna Barnes in The Parent Trap plays the character a bit broader. Thing is said through gritted teeth. It's very showy. It's interesting you bring that up because what is it? The Parent Trap came out the year before? Year after? Uh, 61, I Six, think. Okay, so I was a couple just years after. That. Yeah. That's an interesting comparison. But also, Haley Mills has given it to her. That's the difference. These children, we've seen them put Maria through the ringer. Mm-hmm. They have their bags of tricks. These kids are culpable. But we don't see them do any of that to the Baroness. So there's a different vibe in their energy i'm glad Kristen brought up the manipulations because that's such a great scene and it is something that is one of the many that adds to the adult sensibility of this and for a musical that you look at the picture you're like oh it's a musical about children about singing children but it's such an adult story in so many ways and in thinking of me as a kid watching the scene where the baroness is doing these very low-key manipulations of Maria and what she's feeling. And she sensed the sexual chemistry between them. She sensed that there's something there. Her way of attacking it is just to discuss it openly. Oh, well, he looks at you like a man looks at you and you're a nun. Oh, it is some beautiful villain work that's just human work. That is why this movie, again, if you look at the success of it, We talk a lot now about family movies that have stuff for the parents, and that tends to mean sparkling commentary or witty asides of cultural things that are going to fly over the kid's head. 
in The Sound of Music, it's a family movie that works with the parents because there's so many adult stories being told in this. And The Baroness is a great catalyst for so many of them. The Christopher Plummer stuff that came out upon his death on top of the thirst, I can't tell you how many times I saw the meme of him ripping the swastika, the Nazi flag. I don't think anyone certainly saw the resurgence of Nazism 60 years later coming as like a possible marketing angle for Sound of Music. However, it certainly reverberated with people. I'm glad you guys contextualize this in terms of Vietnam. There's also always that thing of how far you are from the actual event, the historical event represented in a film to when it was made. It's very funny because we have a lot of films these days that seem to be run through military propaganda in a way. This one sort of is, but also isn't. You're getting this member of the military who is this very principled patriot who's very much loves his country and wants to serve his country. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I'm pro-military if the captain's military. Then you're also getting the complexities of what a regime can look like, of how world and country events change everything. And bringing those through and intertwining them with the singing family, it has to be based on something real. Because if somebody pitched that, you'd be like, okay, well, we're going to lose one of those things. Pick one. Pick one. They're literally running from Nazis at the end. They're hiding in a convent from Nazis. It's all things if I was pitching to someone who was like, never heard of it. They're like, "That's, that's a lot. But again, you come back to the plumber and you're like, yeah, I believe that is a man who's going to walk his family across the Alps. Which was unfortunately not true in real life. The Von Trapps actually stayed after the Anschluss and then eventually, I think, left the city. It makes for a very compelling image to have them. In real life, he also had Italian citizenship as well, so they just took the train to Italy. But it looks better. (laughs) It looks better to have Christopher Plummer with little Kim Carath slung over his back, climbing through the I'm every mountain. Right? I kept thinking about the logistics of having seven children climbing over a mountain. And I love how his response to Julie Andrews is just, don't worry, you can help them. Wait, what? We are crossing this mountain, sir. So it's going to be us helping them. And I have no idea how that didn't turn into the Donner Party or something out of the Oregon Trail. So look at the political context It's so layered because you have what we're seeing now with it being utilized for our political discourse. But then you also have to look at it being released in 1965 and how it views politics then. Because its treatment of the Anschluss is really sanitized and fairy tale like because Hitler was incredibly popular at the time of the Anschluss. When he came into Austria, there were far more people that were supportive of him. And the Austrians were actually really ambivalent to the whole thing. As we see, like Max is just, "Eh, well, it's going to happen, whatever. The Roman Catholic Church endorsed the Anschluss, which was a big deal. It wasn't until immediately after this that they started to take the Jewish population out of Vienna. They started doing all the things that we now would commonly associate with World War II. And all of that is really 
off the table in this movie. We're not hearing the word Jew is never mentioned. For all intents and purposes, these are Gentile characters that we're dealing with. Except for Max. That's true. There's a very clear Max's Judaism is also not spoken of, but it's that thing that makes it register even more his ambivalence that you mentioned. It comes across like he doesn't have a sense of fear around them. He has a sense of, ugh, these guys. Ugh. <laughs> we get that softening of it a little bit. Makes me think of that moment in, if anybody's seen Away We Go, where they sanitize the movie, the one family. They're like, the movie ends when the Von Trapps say goodnight. And they're like, yeah, we're just not going to introduce the Nazis to them at the moment. But it is a very soft retelling of that story. I thought of it actually while watching it this last time, how... 15 or so years later when Cabaret comes out and how that movie is far more overt of being like, no, people were watching the Nazis come in and just were like, these guys are never going to be a thing. That movie, Fosse's really saying how stupid you guys were. This movie saying the Von Trapps got out. That's great for them. You don't need to worry at all about what happened afterwards in Austria. It's a very nice way of putting things but I also think that this movie also gets a lot of interest for bringing up the concept of I love my Nazi boyfriend if anybody's seen that meme with the relationship between Liesl and Rolf which and I've seen this movie several times I know all the songs I don't think I ever really listened to the lyrics of 16 going on 17 until this recent reviewing where I was just like girl he was laying out to you exactly the type of guy he was you had some Nazi blinders on because the lyrics to that song are just so disturbing. <laughs> That's also cultural of the time, of gender. The idea of, I need someone older and wiser telling me what to do. That's the patriarchy. The Nazis, that did not exit the stage with them. I do always like the integration of the Rolf character, not just for narrative function, But there's also a nod there of indoctrination. How this kid who was a sweet town boy messenger that she was meeting with and having these beautiful gazebo escapades could in such a short time become so radicalized that he would turn on this family he'd known his whole life that included the girl that he loved. That's strong messaging. That is messaging that stands for now. And if you don't have Rolf in there, it's not that you lose this sweet little love story. It's you lose a lot more of how that idea of a whole country succumbing to these horrible ideas or holding up a man like Hitler instead of immediately just hearing it and being like, absolutely not. Hold the line till the end. That inclusion is one of the most important parts of this movie. Exactly. He just nailed it right on the head. I must have saw this movie when I was 14, 15 years old. Liesl and Rolf, that was an important relationship for me. I loved Rolf. I thought he was adorable. I used to sing that damn song, didn't hear any of it. Thinking on it, one of the most romantic moments for me when I'm a swoony 15-year-old girl with crushes on everything is just getting that moment in the gazebo. That's been a moment that's caused me some trauma, especially as this movie has changed in how Rolf has been read, because he's turned into this symbol of 
toxic masculinity and Nazism and girl, don't go off with your Nazi boyfriend. Where was the change there? What didn't I see? But if we're looking at it through a more period lens here and trying to evaluate as it was written here, a hundred percent right, that Rolf is, he's that symbol of the oncoming Nazi threat. The Nazis aren't stated overtly, but for him to do exactly as you said, to turn against everybody. And he's just this little town messenger. If they could convert that and he could completely override all of this to go for them, it's like, what else could they do? You just blew my mind with that whole analogy. And I think you're 100% right. I was always struck by the fact that Rolf obviously looked like he dyed his hair. Why couldn't we have just found a blonde actor? We had to find a dark-haired kid, and no disrespect to the guy playing Rolf, but HD really isn't your friend for some of these movies, because you can really, Mm -hmm. really tell. (laughs) I do think he was a dirtier blonde. I say this because I've wanted to have Rolf's hair color my whole life. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. No, I think he was dirtier blonde. They did a Draco Malfoy. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, we want this guy (laughs) to look real Aryan. How can we do that? I was going to say, they gave him the Aryan look. They also said, apparently, he was the last person cast in the film, which, again, makes sense to me, because you need someone that you can have these swoony moments with, and that later on, he has a stare down with Christopher Plummer, where Christopher Plummer is trying to appeal to this kid's greater good, someone that he dismissed earlier and did a fatherly, what, get out of here, Now he's looking at him as someone, a fellow Austrian, as someone he's known his whole life. He's reaching out to him. And you need someone who can also be strong enough to look back at Christopher Plummer and be like, no, I'm going to continue on. You do not intimidate me. That's a lot to ask for in a character. You can see throwing the bleach in on top of it once you find the guy. It's the guy (laughs) or the bleach, which is easier to get, the bleach. What I do love that Christopher Plummer's character offers to take Rolf with them, with really no hesitation of this kid's parents trying to save one misguided Austrian soul and he can't do it, which is why before that, the scene where they perform Edelweiss as they're getting ready to leave Austria gets all the feelings going because what this movie does, I know that Christopher Plummer said there was not a whole lot of research on who Georg von Trapp really was as a man. And the closest he got was he interviewed his nephew who said he was the most boring guy he'd ever met. Not a great way to get your character down. Christopher Plummer really emphasized the connection to Salzburg and the mountains, his love of country. When we talk about love of country in movies nowadays, it becomes very over the top. It's being utilized to really make a statement in movies of today. Whereas here, what I was really appreciative of is that his love of country manifests in the small stuff. His children and their love of climbing the trees and going through all these locations, which the fact that they did on-site location work, this would never have worked in a studio. And I say this as somebody who unabashedly loves Brigadoon, but Brigadoon's biggest flaw is that it was not filmed in Ireland. And you need that emphasis on the beauty of Salzburg to really understand why the invasion of the Nazis for his character is such 
a disappointment and a loss of something. And so when they perform Edelweiss at the the showcase, it's his way of saying goodbye, not to just the country, but to the way of life, that innocence. It gets you right in your heart. If you have a connection to a home or place that you love, utilizing that element of this person's personality and creating a character from it, that was ingenious on his part. No, truly, that final performance... And the whole stage performance, when all the Von Trapps are performing together in their traveling gear, because they're like, oh no, these are our costumes. That's a perfect example of the brilliance of casting Christopher Plummer in this. Because there are countless male actors of this time with musical backgrounds that you wouldn't blink at seeing doing a performance with kids and heads and little choreography and twee little moments. Christopher Plummer, you don't bring those expectations or that baggage with him i'll say again the gravitas of what he's doing on that stage and how he changes the timber of the whole performance because he's not the musical guy and yet still looks naturalistic you believe him picking up the guitar you believe him singing along he's a father he's doing something with his family and that's something that I don't know many actors that are leading men that would have been able to do that without some sort of wink in terms of them not actually be performing or seeming a little out of place or theatrical. He is just so steady in that performance, even as they're singing and doing the first lighthearted song. When you switch to Edelweiss and it's just nothing but sad softness it means so much more because it's him. That naturalism, it's the naturalism that you touched at. He's not a musical performer. And that moment where he loses it. And that's the most powerful moment of that scene for me where, where he breaks down and he's this flawed military man, so he keeps it together. But then in, you get Julie Andrews in this performance, which is just nothing but strength coming in to save him. And it just brings it all together. I also want to throw out a shout out to the script because the script for this movie does a lot of heavy lifting too. It's written by Ernest Lehman. You can see some of the best movies ever made just off of films that he did scripts for. He did Sabrina. He did the other Rodgers and Hammerstein movie that was big in the 50s, The King and I, which one day we'll get to that movie. (laughs) Sweet Smell of Success, North by Northwest, West Side Story. He would go on after this to write Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And he did write the script for the movie that killed the musical, which is Hello, Dolly. There's so much good wording and lines of dialogue in this movie that go really well with Rodgers and Hammerstein, who already have really good lyrics for their stuff. And like I said, he had more carte blanche in this than normally... Producers would be the ones doing a lot of the machinations that Lehman was doing. He took the songs and then moved around the order and got rid of songs and then had the foresight to know with apparently originally the song between the captain and Maria when they get their gazebo moment. Bring us all our gazebo moments in this world to know to turn that we actually want something romantic there instead of the piece they already had and to switch in and work with the music in the way he did. But then also, like we said, there's so many small moments of when they come back and they're all in their, my favorite wardrobe in the whole world, the drape costumes, and they fall out of the boat and he sees his children and they're happy for the first time and they're all working together and they're loving, but they're disorderly. They're not 
clean and proper. And that's what the regimented part of him wants. He's upset. And then he hears them singing. There's something about that. That is writing. To craft that scene of you get this beautiful visual of what these unlocked children and the difference between when they were first presented in the same spot, in their uniforms, in their whistleblows. And then you see them now and they're just grinning and sloppy and messy and so happy. It's beautifully written. Beautifully written. It really is. And I want to mention, too, this movie, The Sound of Music, is one of the most commercially successful films of all time. To put that into terms that are just mind-boggling to me, four weeks after it released in theaters, it was the number one movie in the U.S. from revenue generated by just 25 theaters that were screening 10 roadshow performances a week. That is bonkers. That does not happen. And you can see where people were thinking, oh, okay, the musical, obviously people want more musicals. So they started greenlighting everything. You get stuff going into the late 60s, Funny Girls and Oliver's. People have talked about why Hello, Dolly is the film that killed the musical. But a lot of it was that they were really particular about what Broadway shows. It had to be a hit, right? And after you do all of the big ones, you're left with stuff where you're just like, how does that exactly translate into a movie? You're scraping the bottom of the barrel of content. It's an era that is always fascinating to me because the 60s in just a decade of time flamed out an entire genre that we would see glimpses of later, most famously with stuff like Bob Fosse in the 80s. I don't even think now it has the prominence that it had pre-1965. I'm just biting my tongue over the disparagement of Hello, Dolly, <laughs> a film that I love. Credit it gets very unfair. Although, wasn't Hello, Dolly a couple years before Sound of Music? No, it was 69. 69, yeah. Oh, the musical was 64. Yeah, the musical was gotcha, definitely gotcha, six, gotcha, 64 or 65. film came out later. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the same thing. We see this all the time. It's part of film history is that executives look at the success of a film and identify the wrong thing about the film to try and replicate. That they'll be like, oh, people are into dystopian stories. No, people are into empowered teenager stories. The whole thing of, yeah, do you guys watch any of the stuff you make? How do you not know what it is people are actually liking? I have only seen about half of Hello, Dolly. Most of what I know is from watching Wally, which uses the music of Hello, Dolly. So maybe one day we will talk about the quote unquote death of the musical <laughs> and Hello, Dolly, because I would like to finish it one time. <laughs> Hello, Dolly. It's hard because I had a long Michael Crawford phase when I was a teenager. So I watched that movie a lot. Recently, I've dove into the Broadway show, and there are elements of going from Carol Channing in the original Broadway cast to Barbara Streisand. That's such a jump. What are you trying to go for there? You had Charles Nelson Riley, a Broadway legend in there. They replaced it with Michael Crawford. There was such convoluted... Mistakes were made. <laughs> Mistakes were made. I love Tommy Toon with every fiber of my being, and I just had to name drop him in there. Well, he apparently but just had a birthday. Yeah, he did. I saw that on Twitter and I'm like, oh, tell me too. And I love it. It was <laughs> the weirdest moment of the Golden Globes, but the best moment was during that Jane, Jane Fonda's acceptance speech. She ended it with happy birthday, Tommy Toon, to which point millions of people went to Google who Tommy Toon was. 
if they didn't have the luck of seeing him in Bye Bye Birdie on stage like I did as a child. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm jealous. Anything else we want to discuss about The Sound of Music? I love this movie. There's not a lot of films that you could genuinely say, oh yeah, this is a four-quadrant movie. This movie makes sense to me that so many people from different backgrounds, from different perspectives can find something in this to amuse them. Unless those people are Kristen's mother. That's just the way of the world. There's always got to be one. Exactly. I would agree with Drea. I love this movie. It's a great encapsulation, I think, of why people love musicals and also probably why people hate musicals, as my mother's evidence. When we talk about the musical, we tend to revere the 40s and 50s. And the 1960 musical is very hit or miss. I don't think we've ever talked about My Fair Lady, and I hope we never do because that would require me to watch it again, and I despise that movie. You had to be a certain way in order to get love. And I think that this movie does that because of the script, because of the music itself, because of that cast. Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews were the perfect two to anchor this. We didn't talk a whole lot about the kids, but I also think each one of them is perfectly cast because even though they don't have a whole lot of backstory to them, who is Kurt versus Friedrich? But all of them are so distinct in the way that they act and the way that they approach things so that even if they don't necessarily have backstories, they at least have personality. I love this movie. I think it's perfect. The mark of a great movie like this is where you can watch it so many times and still find something to appreciate and love. Whether it's something like going from liking the kids or liking the 16 going on 17 to being able to turn a more experienced eye towards the captain and what is going on with the baroness or when i was re-watching this last night i fell down a rabbit hole for bill lee the man who did the vocal dubbing for christopher Plummer. google that if you have he's adorable learned about a barbershop quartet i didn't know about that i want to find all their music now there's so much depth so many layers and so much is going on and we did a great job capturing some of that with this and it's just such a great discussion and it's a fun movie I now just want to know what barbershop quartets you already knew about. <laughs> I, I have a fondness a for them. Kim <laughs> is your barbershop quartet expert, as well as anything you would need to know about old classic game shows. I've learned a lot from Kim. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on The Sound of Music, Christopher Plummer, whether Hello Dolly is a good movie or not. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or you can tweet them to us we get a lot of play on twitter for statements like this so you can tweet your thoughts to us at ticklish underscore biz i'd like to thank kimberly pierce once more for joining us this episode kim where can fans find you online what's coming to the website my personal twitter is at kpier624 and i'm probably there more than most of the social medias Always on the website, trying to keep everything running smoothly over there. Been up with the TCM picks every Monday, and I actually have a list that I'm working on now that I'm excited about of Disney voice actors you might not know about and Disney legends who deserve some more love. Instagram, kpier624. Our website, journeysinclassicfilm.com, has the show notes, and you can listen to these episodes there, as well as reading Kim's amazing reviews. I do the very occasional review or book review. We got a lot of stuff up there. Dre Clark, what is going on with you online? Where can fans reach out to you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. 
And in addition to this, I also co-host a contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya on Maximum Fun. And you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Audible. I just found out we were on Audible. Apple Podcasts, if you're on Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave us a review. Wherever you get your shows, we are there. If you also want to support us via Patreon, we have all sorts of amazing bonus content, including exclusive interviews and our two bonus shows based on a true podcast where we just talked about introducing Dorothy Dandridge and Double Features, which we have our latest episode coming up about three versions of The Three Musketeers. We will be back next time. Tomorrow.